1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi. Theory.
1: Hi. Welcome to High Theory.
0: In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory.
1: I'm Sharonik Boshu.
0: And I'm Kim
1: Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself.
0: Today, I'm speaking with Eli Cook about choice architecture. Eli, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Yeah, of course. Hello, everyone. My name is Eli, and I teach history of American capitalism at the University of Haifa in Israel.
0: Welcome. And so let me ask you our first question. What the heck is choice architecture?
1: Yeah, so this is actually a pretty easy question to answer because choice architecture is a word that was invented by behavioral economists pretty late, actually. Everyone knows it mostly from the book Nudge, which was a huge bestseller that came out in 2008. I think the idea of the term choice architecture is a little bit older than that. The writers of Nudge, which is Richard Thaler, who recently won the Nobel Prize in economics. He teaches at a business school, which is relevant. We'll get back to that. And then Cass Sunstein, who is a well-known legal theorist. So the term choice architecture, as they invented it, is basically the idea that the way that choices are presented to you, and they're talking here, usually fairly structured choices. The classic example they give is someone in a cafeteria line. You know, how is the food set up? But it can also be a multiple choice questionnaire or how you fill out your like pension forms or things like that and basically choice architecture is the way these choices are presented to you and Their big argument in Nudge is that you can influence people, but you can only nudge them. And they're very careful, not to say that there's actually any real power here, but they're kind of dry, not dry, but their kind of initial definition of choice architecture is this idea that if you structure the menus of options in certain ways, you can overcome people's inherent biases. Basically, they believe that we have all these bugs in our brains that don't allow us to be the rational thinkers that economists dream that we could be. But don't worry, because thanks to Sunstein and Thaler, they can now help create choice architectures where actually you can overcome these biases or actually they'll overcome them for you. And then you'll actually make the choices that both the economic models kind of predicted you would make, but also the ones that, of course, are best for you. They call this idea libertarian paternalism. So they're trying to say, on one hand, you're still free to choose. We're not, you know, coercing you in any way. But on the other hand, uh, they are saying that, you know, this changes your behavior and it does so for the better, and we're looking out for you, and all these nudges are going to make you feel better and eat better and live better and so forth. So I would say that is how they define choice architecture. One of the things that I try to do in my book that I'm writing now is you know, shift the focus, because usually when we think of choice, it's such as kind of individualist, I would say, even neoliberal kind of concept, where you know it's all about me and my ability to choose from a set of options, and it's usually kind of leads to these notions of freedom and choice is, of course, a huge part of economic theory. And what I try to do is turn the tables by not looking at the choosers, but looking at people throughout history who have designed very structured, rigid forms of choice architecture, and those people are the choice architects. So in that sense, for me, choice architects are the people who invented multiple choice tests, the industrial psychologist, Walter Dill Scott, who invented the five-star rating to kind of try to control employees. That was in the 1920s. I have a chapter on the guy who invented the first like button, which actually was a like and dislike button. He was the president of CVS. It's not Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) Um, This was in the 1930s. Mostly applied psychologists, I'd say, are the people I look at, although later it's also economists. And what's interesting is that the behavioral economists themselves are choice architects. And not only in the sense that Richard Thaler and Sustin meant in that they actually want governments to form these nudge units that can then, you know, nudge us into more like positive outcomes. But actually, if you look at the way behavioral economics was invented by actually two Israelis, Tversky and Kahneman in the uh, 1970s, what they actually did was choice architecture in the sense that they gave people multiple choice questions and they showed that just by the way they frame the questions and kind of shape the questions and build the questions, they can get people to give answers that are against what should normally be in rational choice theory, the decisions that they make. For instance, they can get people to reverse their preferences. In basic economic theory, our preferences are kind of like innate. But they showed that just by framing these very specific questions, oftentimes they're about like gambling questions at first, like, would you rather have, you know, a 20% chance of getting $100 or a 40% chance of getting $80, stuff like that. And just by the way they changed the wording, people would give different answers. And then they were like, aha, You see, people have these weird biases in their brains. They're not actually completely rational. And so what's interesting is that the very kind of science of behavioral economics requires you to put people into what I call choice boxes. That's the term I've come up with. And then obviously all these things lead up to like digital capitalism. And I think today we spend most of our days kind of in these choice boxes that were built by choice architects, whether, you know, it's swiping left or right in Tinder or Googling. And then you get like very kind of like, you know, six options on the page and you have to choose one or, you know, the Netflix recommendation algorithm or YouTube, pretty much, I would say the internet and especially platform capitalism is built almost entirely, and its power it comes from choice architecture. And so in this sense, the choice architects would be kind of the people behind these platforms. How do I use choice
0: architecture?
1: Generally, you don't use choice architecture, choice architecture uses you. Most of us are not you know, choice architects in the sense that I use the term, which is people who have the power And throughout my book, it's usually wasps, like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men, uh, who for whatever reasons gained this enormous amount of power to kind of put us into these choice boxes. And so I start the book by saying, like, if you look back at the 19th century, there's hardly any menus, there's hardly any choice architecture, even restaurants, you go in there Pretty much, you're going to get served whatever they made that day. Also, you know, as far as like you know consumer choice goes, except for things like the Sears catalog, which was actually one of the first examples I would say of choice architecture. It's not really until like the end of the 19th century you don't really get like you know the supermarkets until much later. And I would say that even you know the classic idea of a ballot voting. I don't know how many people know this. This has been written about a lot, but throughout most of the 19th century, uh, Americans did not choose. The, when they voted, they didn't go into like a individual booth and then choose, you know, people off a list like in a multiple choice test. Rather, they went inside the voting booth with already kind of this list, a ticket. That's where the term party ticket comes from. So for most Americans in the 19th century, they really had very little experience in these structured choices. It really is kind of like something that's born out of the 20th century. And today, I mean, just think about your day, okay? Did you do a BuzzFeed quiz today that told you, you know, which friend's character are you? Because that, that's, that's choice architecture. Did you study for the SATs and then, you know, take that test that basically defines so many people's future? That's choice architecture. Did you go on Zillow? and look to see what the school rating is next to your house and I get into this a lot because it's like modern day redlining but that score is completely based on multiple choice tests which is another form of choice architecture and I won't get into here how you know the way that people have constructed these tests often make them into basically class tests where the thing that they're best at predicting is not you know how quote unquote Smart or gifted or talented you are, but you know what is your socioeconomic background and you know what race and class are you from and then obviously, you go online today and if you're ever asked to rate or rank somebody, you haven't built a choice architecture, but they're using you, for instance, every time you rate someone on Uber, the five star rating that is i would argue a form of choice architecture that's kind of being used. To discipline workers. In this case, you don't even need bosses to do it. You'll do it as the consumer. And then there's, like I said before, all these different examples from platform capitalism, swiping left, swiping right clicking yes, clicking no, likes and dislikes. Uh, one of the things that I stress in the book is this kind of move from voice to choice. So I think throughout most of the history, when people wanted to express themselves, they usually did so with words. Even early computers, they had like keyboards and people used to write a lot of stuff and they would do all these wacky things. And then, you know, I kind of talk about even about like clicking and the mouse and that kind of thing as tools that can allow us into these kind of menus and, and so forth. And I would say, you know, today, there was a recent study that said people spend more time on their phones than they do sleeping. And I think chances are, except for maybe when you're texting with friends and family, a lot of times when you're on your phones, you're in a choice box of some kind or another. So, I mean, they're pretty pretty much everywhere today. I'm curious because you mentioned the Sears catalog. Yeah. Do you talk about the whole Earth catalog? I don't. In fact, I don't really look at catalogs at all. Okay. I try to stick to really very structured forms of choice. I do look at choose your own adventure books. I have a whole chapter on that and why they emerged in the 1980s. I argue that there's no technological reason to have these game books, these choice architecture books appear at that precise moment. But I think... I argue it's kind of like neoliberalism for children. So I look at some literary things. There is a cultural side to us that's super interesting. I mentioned like the BuzzFeed quizzes. I think that started, from what I can tell from my research, that started with teen magazines and 17, I think in the 1970s, maybe the early 80s. This notion that, you know, if you just answer a set of questions, we'll tell you who they are. That idea even goes back further if you go to the history of the personality test, which is also a form of choice architecture. I always look for kind of these menus where you really are kind of, these kind of rigid options and the thing with the whole earth catalog and even the sears catalog is that while it is choice there is a ton of choice like these sears catalogs were massive so in ways you kind of get lost in them in ways that aren't the kind of real rigid structured forms of choice that i'm most interested in
0: the choices that you're thinking about it's not like the sort of like hot mess of the early
1: internet but it's actually much more structured boxes that we end up in now I love that. What you said about hot mess that's so that's exactly right. And of course Steve Jobs who I write about for all sorts of reasons. Jobs really from the minute he creates the Macintosh he wants to be in complete control and you see that in the App Store and and like you were saying this is not a hot mess. This is, you know, you're going to have four options. He, that's why he loved the idea of the interface where all you can do is click because that just kind of disempowers people in such a way he wouldn't even let you kind of move the mouse with the buttons on the keyboard you had to use the mouse you had to do it his way mm-hmm. so in that sense i agree that there was like this moment where like silicon valley and computers could have gone another way where everyone has their like hyperlinks and it's all these weird blogs and that, i'm not talking about that i'm, I'm cool with that stuff uh, <laughs>
0: So, well, on the prospect of the utopian internet, which we're sad to have lost, let me ask you our final question. How will choice architecture save the world?
1: My book is definitely not about saving the world. It's about how choice is such a feeling of freedom and people are kind of attracted to it. You know, when the first kids in the early 20th century took multiple choice tests, they loved it at first. It was like, oh, I want to do more of these. It's There's this feeling of like safety and structure and it's, oh, it's comfortable. But of course, it's also because you don't have to really think outside the box, literally. You don't even really need to think for yourself because what multiple choice tests do is you're constantly thinking, what does the other person want me to do? What What's the right answer in his eye? Mm-hmm. So it also creates this kind of conformity it's been a utopian project in the sense that the people who sell you choice architectures are always selling you freedom but of course i think it's in many ways the most insidious form of power because you feel that you're free and actually there is real choice you know this isn't i'm not making some argument where all our choices are an illusion just that there's enormous power in the people who construct the choices, who decide what's on the table and what's off the table, what is going to be shown to you and what is not going to be shown to you. But I do think that it's important for people on the left, not just to be negative and shit on capitalism, but to actually kind of imagine different alternatives. And I was part of this post-capitalism group here in Israel a few years ago. And in the end, the article I wrote for this book that's coming out here was imagining what kind of choice architecture could we do using the technologies of our phones and everything to democratize capital investment? So instead of basically the way capitalism works, a few rich people deciding what we're going to invest in and what society is going to, what direction they're going to move into, that we could have some kind of decentralized democratic point system where you get these points and these points are actually worth money. But then you actually basically have to make these choices. Like, would you rather you have 100 points, and you have to decide, you know, how to allocate capital, these are like what capitalists do. So if you really want your neighborhood to have a new playground, then you would kind of vote for that. And if you wanted people to invest in cleaner energy in your city, then you would vote for that. And so I think for imagining ways where we can democratize capital, I think that we can think in terms of choice architecture. And I think there are forms of choice architecture that can be democratic. And I always quote C. Wright Mills when he says that freedom is not choosing from a menu of options. Freedom is being involved in the actual choices that are going to be available to you and arguing over them and deciding what the menu of options would be. So I would say that the way that choice architecture could save the world is if we spent less time just mindlessly picking and choosing from lists that, you know, other powerful people have decided what's available to us and spent more time deciding, wait a minute, why are these the only two options? Or why are these the only three options? Or how can we change it so that the options that are laid before us are democratically determined? That's really nice. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody gets to be a choice architect. That's a great way of putting it. Everyone gets to be a choice. Everyone should get to be a choice architect.
0: Yeah. I do wonder how freedom gets linked to choice. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is in earlier historical moments. Like,
1: no, no, no.
0: You know, when people talk about the abolition of slavery in the US, freedom means something really,
1: really different than the freedom to choose, right? It's a great question. Although I could say if people were to kind of look now at the history of slavery, there would be people, and they probably existed back then too, who were like, slavery is bad because you can't choose your employer. You know, as long as you can choose your employer, you're free. So there's always been people, even back then, who's like, you know, markets are freedom and markets are freedom because there is no coercion. And of course, anybody who's actually working class knows that that's complete bullshit because usually you get to choose between like three or four shitty jobs. Mm -hmm. What economists now would call a monopsony. We've known about that a long time before that word was invented. Yeah. But I think you make an excellent point. And I actually talk about this a little in my book. I don't go like deep into like the 18th, 19th century. But what I do show in my chapter actually about choose your own adventure Mm. is that if you look at even America after World War II, when people thought about freedom, they usually thought about, first of all, security, Mm. job security. But also, just your physical security, safety, but also, like, not risk. Social security is a great example of this idea of freedom being that, you know, I'm free because I know that even if something bad happens to me, I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And then, In the 1980s, we see this with the rise of neoliberalism, even things like social security. Now everyone wants a 401k or not everyone. They're kind of foisted upon us. Mm -hmm. And those 401ks, for those who don't know, are kind of like where you have to choose your investments. And now you're the chooser. And, you know, if you make bad choices, then you might reach old age and you won't have anything. But that's freedom. So it's free to choose, but it's also free to lose, which is always a big part of the freedom of choice. There's a great poll that I found, I think, from like 1983, where Americans are asked, like, what's the most important thing in your life right now? Or what are the most important values you have? And very high up, even more than like spending time with my family, was the freedom to choose. Hmm. So there is something very striking. It starts in the 70s and then kind of really takes off in the 1980s, this notion of the freedom of choice, which becomes very, very... And until this day, you know, when conservatives or right-wingers want to attack the welfare state, you know, to be like, oh, you want healthcare? But then you won't be able to choose your doctor. So you're better off just not having any doctor, I guess. But <laughs> um, And it's important to say that, you know, it's also a liberal theme. And I think one of the reasons why there's this whole literature on choice feminism, which I think is really interesting, but I think there's a reason why when it comes to abortions, the framing has always been kind of Mm pro-choice. It's actually, I think it's a pretty smart framing because the idea of choice has become hegemonic, but there is a reason why that happened. And so it's not just the conservatives who are talking about it. It's become a hegemonic value. And, And it really wasn't for, I would say, most of American history. There were Other notions of freedom, you can go back to slavery. You can go back to other notions of you know feelings of autonomy and what's it like to be in a republic. Not having a boss was a really big notion of freedom for a long time in history of the United States. I feel right. The human farmer. The yeah, 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 yeah. Wage labor was considered you know horrible. It was like degrading. It was embarrassing. I mean, it was if it was for a few years, okay, but after that, good God, no, you can't have a boss. That's not freedom.
0: All right. So maybe instead of everybody becoming a
1: choice architect, everybody can become their own employer. (laughs) That's kind of like, you know, the neoliberal uh, dream of freelancing. Oh, no, you don't you don't work for Uber, you work for yourself. (laughs) But (laughs) neoliberalism is very smart. And it knows even how to use kind of like the hatred of bosses. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think we're reaching a point in American society, at least, and it's other places where people are like, I want a boss, give me a boss. Uh, Because, you know, (laughs) you're better off having a boss than an algorithm control you, I think. Maybe, I don't know. At least bosses, they have, you know, there's some kind of social relation there. Mm -hmm. There's a certain responsibility they have to take and things like that. And of course, with the gig economy, you don't even get that. Yeah, indeed.
0: Well, let us hope that we all have benevolent bosses or something of that (laughs) sort.
1: Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. No, this has been great. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you for listening to High Theory.
1: If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix.
0: Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence.
1: Julia Irian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music.
0: You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.